turn to Hosea with me. Let's read God's word. We're going to be looking, as I said, at verses 1 through 11. We'll pick up from there next time in verse 12, which is actually a, a better breaking point in the text than is 12.1 or 12.2, so, uh, because the, the thought shifts there, and so I, I decided it was best just to keep it all together as the way it should be. God's word, it's precious to the saints. Let's hear it. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on the jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recalls within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Father, thank you for your word. And now this evening, would you please bless your preacher and your people as we hear your voice in your scriptures here tonight. May we leave renewed, refreshed, reminded of your wonderful, steadfast love that endures forever. Amen. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. We just read it in 2 Timothy. That was, God, that was Paul's assessment of God's relationship to us and our relationship to God. When we are faithless, he is faithful. And that's pretty much a summary of these 11 verses. Uh, let's not forget, this started way back in chapter 1 of Hosea with the the whole issue of the marriage between Hosea, the godly voice piece of the Lord God, Jehovah, and God's instruction to him to marry a harlot. 
a prostitute, one who worked in prostitution for her living and her loving. And then, after the third chapter, we turn to commentary. God's giving commentary on what that whole relationship symbolized. Not that it wasn't historic, historical, it was, but it had a meaning. As, I, as I've said from the earliest days here, God's history is full of theology. God didn't give stories just to tell neat stories. He gave us these stories to teach us theology. And one of the, one of the primary lessons that we're to learn from this one is the faithfulness of God. It's easy for us to read a chapter like this, which one commentator says perhaps the boldest chapter in the Bible. It's, it's, it's easy, isn't it, for us to read a chapter like this and read too little. That's the warning that Derek Kidner gives us. He said uh, it's, it, it's because uh, we tend to project upon God the way we think about relationships instead of letting God be God. And just think about yourself. I know I'm this way. And I know from the Bible it's wrong. And so I have to fight against this. We tend, if somebody doesn't reciprocate the affection, reciprocate the feelings, reciprocate in communication, we tend to finally just quit. Just give up. Just write them off. Well, I've done my part. I've done it for 20 years. I've done it for 30 years. I'm not doing it anymore. This has to be two-sided or it's not going to be. I'm not going to carry on this one-sided friendship. If I were to ask you how many of you have been there or are there now with someone, you'd all raise your hand. If you're of any age, you'd raise your hand because that's the way we do it. Kidner warns us that it's easy for us to project that onto God and think that that's the way God does it too. Listen to what he says. When we speak of God as father, which this passage is, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When we speak of God as father, we hesitate in case we read too much into the word. But our chief danger is in reading too little from it, drawing our ideas either from an earthly father's indulgence, caring too, caring too little for his children's training, or from a father's self-indulgence, taking the convenient path of a domestic tyrant. He's right. That's one of the big struggles, particularly for unchurched people, people who didn't grow up in church or perhaps people who did grow up in church, but they had, a, they had an overbearing father. Or perhaps they had no father at all. We live in a culture that's having more and more of those cases, right? Children conceived out of wedlock. And they're growing up with no fathers. 
then you have the sad situations where they may be growing up with their biological father, but he is, he is no dad. And so people struggle with this, of thinking of God as their father and having good thoughts about that. And so Kidner says, when we read a passage like this, it's easy for us to minimize it. To think too little of it when we should think big thoughts about it because God is not like man. In fact, God even says that in there, didn't he? Didn't I read that somewhere along the lines? I am God and not a man, verse 9b says. And yet one of our great sins over and over is projecting upon God the figures we see in humanity. And we have, to, we have to not do that. So as we spend these few moments in this bold chapter, let's not cast God in our image or any other human image. Let's learn of his great love and his faithfulness to his people. So let's look at it. First point, God's love is beyond our understanding. We say that. We have a word for it. The incomprehensibility of God. That's just something... We, in our tradition, we say a lot, God's incomprehensible. You know, you can't understand God. He's too big for our little finite minds. But do we stop and think about it? And does that cause us to be uh, wowed by God? Or does it just cause us to think, well, we can't understand him. I I don't know. I'm just going to go on and do what I'm doing. Well, that's not what it should cause. It should cause us to be stunned. It should be, cause us to be drawn to him, to know him more, to know him better. We have to pay attention to something here. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Personifying Israel is not unusual in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly. As a child, Israel is described, and that's not unusual. We think of it in the New Testament. I just read Paul speaking to Timothy and he called him his child. He wasn't a biological child. He wasn't even an adopted child. He was a spiritual child. John the Apostle, one of his favorite terms for his fellow believers was beloved. I loved him. But the other favorite term is my little children. children. That love for the children is unconditioned. We know that from the tenor of the Bible, but let's go right back to the origin of it. And it's back in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verses seven and eight. Let me read that to you. You're familiar with it, perhaps. It's when God is explaining to Israel, like he's writing to Israel here, why he chose them. It was an unconditioned choice. It's easy sometimes for us to get the notion, even in the reformed community, that, well, I was born into a Christian home. Covenant children, you you have to be careful with this. There are many benefits to growing up in in a covenant household. But it's not because you grow up in a covenant household that God has set his love upon you. 
His love is not conditioned, even on covenant household-ism. Okay? That's a new word, covenant household-ism. Just because you're in a covenant household, that's not the condition God's looking for. Oh, good. They're born in a covenant home. I'll put my love on them. Listen to what God says. The Lord did not make you his beloved, nor choose you because you were greater in number than any of the peoples, since you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you. We have a hard time settling on that, don't we? Just He just loved us? For no good reason? No. In fact, if you said anything, you'd have to say for bad reasons. He loved us. We're bad. We're sinful. He loved us. Let me read on. I didn't do it because of anything. I didn't choose you because you were greater in number than any other people. In fact, you were the smallest of the people's. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which you swore to your forefathers. This is going all the way back to Abraham. This is going all the way back to Noah. This is going all the way back to Adam. I swore to your forefathers. Why? Because he had already cast his love upon the people from eternity past. That's why he could say what he said to Adam with the blessing, the covenant promise that the seed of this woman would be the Messiah. That's why he could say to Noah, obey me, get on the boat that you're building the way I tell you to build it. And when you get off your seed, they're going to be multiplied, be fruitful and multiply. And to Abraham, as the sands of the sea, as the stars of the sky. And again, now in the Mosaic context, I loved you because I loved you. And by the way, I swore an oath that I would love you. I told your fathers this. Because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slaves, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8. We struggle with understanding the unconditional love of God in theory. But then we really struggle when we think about the reality of our lives. Well, I know in theory, I know that my theology says God loves us even though we don't deserve it. But, but look, look who I am. Look how I've lived. Or maybe even look what I just did last night. You see that in verse 2? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. And so we look at ourselves in that mirror. We say, that's us. We came in, we worshiped, we went through the liturgy, and we left unchanged. We sacrificed to the Baals. We came, we sang, we didn't even remember what we sang. We made offerings to idols. And God, you're telling me God loves me unconditionally. And that's exactly what he's saying. Notice verse 3. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Ephraim, we've seen this all through Hosea. Ephraim, Israel, used interchangeably. It's not two distinct people. It's the same people. 
I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they didn't know that I healed them. See, even though they went away from God when he called them, even though they sacrificed to Baals, even though they burnt offerings to idols, he still taught them to walk. He still, yet, he says, it was I who took them up. I who took them by the arms. They didn't know that I healed them. Even though you, we don't even recognize sometimes when God's doing all these wonderful things for us. We don't even realize, oh, that was God. That was God that spared me. That was God that kept me. That was God that did this. They didn't recognize it. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on the jaws. I bent down to them and I fed them. All this God says, I was doing for you and yet you walked away from me. And yet I was doing it while you were walking away from me. And you're saying, you mean he loves me and he cares for me even when I'm disobeying him? Yeah, that's exactly what Hosea is saying what God is saying through Hosea here. And we, that's, that's, that's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? Because, see, we don't, we, we're not like that. Or at least often we're not like that. We have those occasional glimpses, little, 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 little bright lights that we act like we ought to towards sinful fellow sinners. But God, it's not just a little, little flicker here and there. It's a, he's always, because he is, he is steadfast in his love for his people. Aren't you glad that he doesn't? He doesn't just say like we say, okay, I've made my last phone call. I'm not doing any more here. If they want to talk, they'll call me. He just keeps calling and keeps calling. Verse 5, we see a shift. God's love is unconditional. God's love is unending, as we just read in 3 and 4. But that doesn't mean that he tolerates our sin. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. Well, that's good news. Remember all through Isaiah, we saw Israel flirting, Judah, that is, flirting with all the surrounding nations. You know, they hate depending on God. We heard yesterday morning a wonderful sermon. If you were here, sat in on the worship service of Presbytery, you heard a wonderful sermon from Isaiah chapter 39 by the new pastor in Maryville, Jonathan Brooks. A wonderful sermon on this very thing. They flirted with Egypt. They flirted with Assyria. They flirted with Babylon. They flirted with the Philistines. The last thing they wanted to do was trust God. They wanted to trust the chariots and the horses and the manpower of the surrounding nations. Egypt was one of those surrounding nations. They, did, they, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Sigh of relief. But... Assyria should be their king. In fact, Syria was their king. 
And they never, as we heard yesterday morning so well said, they never went back in fullness. Some returned, a remnant returned, but never were they restored in their totality after the exile because they've refused to return to me. They've refused to repent. Let's just put it in language we use every day. They, they refuse to repent. What have I said all the way through this? The warnings God gives to his people, number one purpose is not to condemn us. Not just to scare us to death with what's coming if we don't repent. But the number one purpose God has in warnings is to bring us to repentance. To graciously draw us back to himself. But they didn't. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their own counsels. Notice their own counsels. They're not consulting him. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Ever since chapter 7, we've read of Israel or Ephraim flirting with these other nations. God assures them that they're going to suffer because of their sin. There are consequences to sin. But then notice, notice this moderate tone that comes in verse 8. God asking the question, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Rhetorical question. The answer is I can't. Because I've bound myself from eternity. I've decreed from eternity that I will love my people. And they'll be my people and I'll be their God. Second question, rhetorical. How can I hand you over, O Israel? The answer, I, 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 I can't. I'm not going to. Your sins are going to take you into exile but I'm not turning you over. And then, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Now, unless you've looked it up in the marginalia, unless you've just read back in Genesis 14 or Deuteronomy 29, you may be thinking, I don't remember Adma and Zobaim. Well, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? These are the other cities that God destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so what's he saying? How can I make you like Adma? The answer is I, I, I can't. I'm not going to destroy you like I did them. How about Zeboim? Nope, not like them either. My heart recalls within me, God says. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. We'd destroy them, wouldn't we? You deserve it. You get what you deserve. That's the way we do. God has to remind us again. And what we need to say is, I'm so glad God's not like me. I'm so glad God is God and I'm not. I suspect, based on Revelation chapter 7, that the numbers that John saw in heaven exceed human counting. Even the supercomputer 
summit, I think is what they call it. Had John had that at his disposal, it would still be running as fast as it can process. We like to think sometimes that God is, God is such that the numbers in heaven will all just be a little old community about the size of this in heaven. Having the whole run of heaven and then the whole run of the new heavens and new earth when we get our bodies glorified on this. And the fact is there are going to be countless numbers. Beyond numbers. Because God's not like man. The Holy One. Notice what it says in all of this stuff. They're not turning to God. They're, they're sacrificing to Baals. They're burning offerings. And yet God says that he is in their midst. And I'm not going to come to you in wrath. Blows our minds, doesn't it? God does not tolerate sin. But he does discipline us. Notice what it said. He, he, he's... He, it, it says he's, he, he'll not execute his burning anger. I'm God. You see verse 8. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What was it that drove the writer of Hebrews chapter 12 to say that God disciplines and doesn't punish? His, his discipline is a is a um, is one that's designed for bringing us back, not one for retribution. Because God loves us like a father loves his sons and daughters. The love of God. The love of God flows from his compassion. His compassion flows from his love. Listen to this. This is Jeremiah writing at a time when, when things were no better than the time of Hosea. The Lord's steadfast love indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then will, he will have compassion according to his abundant steadfast love. Aren't you glad? He disciplines those he loves and he doesn't destroy them. If the Lord was not disciplining us, we wouldn't exist. We would just be snuffed out. I was sitting on the deck the other night, didn't like the torches. And of course, what I find myself as I'm sitting there with a glass of peach tea and with my book reading... I don't know how many little bugs I mashed off my legs, off my... Finally, I lit the torches so I could have some peace and be free of distraction. But that's how we would be if God were a God set on destroying us when we sin. But he set on his compassion drives him to restore us. And restore is exactly what happens here. That's what the last point is. God lo God's love woos his people from their sin. They shall go. So God turns. His heart recalls. He's not going to destroy them. They will go into exile. Assyria will have their way with them. 
but then they shall go after the Lord, verse 10 says. Why? Because of his compassion. Because he's God and not a man. They shall go after the Lord. He'll roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come. Notice two things here. They will come. They hear his voice. Back to John 10. Here, there the imagery is of a good shepherd calling the sheep. Here the imagery is of a lion calling in the, in the, in the forest, in the jungles. And the people hear it and they come. But they come trembling. They come in humility. And that's how we come to God, out of our sin. We don't come proud. We don't come arrogant. We don't come excusing our sin. We come trembling. We come humbly before the Lord, just like we would a lion. They come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And notice what he will do. He'll reward them. I will return them to their homes. You remember something I've said a lot in preaching in the prophets. The land, the land. That's where God dwelt with his people. That's where God blessed his people was when they were in the land. This whole thread of going, sending them into exile was that they were going to be leaving their land. They're going to be leaving the promises. They're going to be away from the promise where God blesses his people, where he dwells with his people. And now he's saying, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to call them to myself in an unmistakable way. They won't be able to turn away from me when I call them with this irresistible call. And they will come to me heartbroken, trembling, contrite, and I'll restore them to their homes. They'll reap the blessings that I have promised them. They'll be settled in the land. Blessings will be theirs. Now, there's a question that goes with this, these two verses. There's a couple of questions. First, when will this happen? And to whom will it happen? Well, the to whom it will happen, we learn gradually it's the remnant. Not all of them, but there is a handful that will be brought back. But is that what this is really about? That gets to the question of when's this going to happen? And there are some that say, well, it's talking about at when the Babylonian captivity comes to an end and God restores a few to the land. Others then say, wait a minute. Paul in chapter 9, at the beginning of that great discourse, 9 through 11, where he deals with Israel and God restoring Israel. In chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, he quotes Hosea 1.10 and Hosea 2.23. And there he does it to say that there is going to be a great engrafting of Gentiles into the trunk. Talking about the whole gospel period. The intermediate day of the Lord, the preaching of the gospel going to the ends of the earth and God saving people from all over the earth. And then others say, well, but maybe it's a reference to the end of that great section in Romans 9, 
through 11. It's a reference to 11.25 and following where we read that and then at the end, at the time that the Lord will descend, prior, just prior to that, before he descends, the new heavens and new earth come, the great day of resurrection comes, he will, we, he will, there will be a great salvation, and the scripture says, and then all Israel shall be saved. So you've got the near fulfillment in the remnant. You've got the, the, the gospel fulfillment following following the work of Christ on this earth, and then you've got the ultimate future fulfillment at the end when all Israel is saved. Now, some people take a position on one or the other of those. I happen to think it's all three of those. There's a reference to the whole, the whole kitten caboodle. Oodles for some, kitten caboodles for others. Okay? The Bible does that sometimes, where there's an immediate reference, a near future reference, and then a far distant reference of fulfillment of prophecies. And there's no reason to think otherwise here, because it starts being fulfilled, and they see a little glimmer of hope that there's fulfillment. God's faithfulness is bringing the people back, and then it increases. When Jesus comes, and then at the end, it's going to be cataclysmic. The numbers are going to be unbelievable. And yet we should believe it. We should be looking forward. In fact, Derek Kidner says, so what do we say about this? He says this, while it may be uncertain if there's one or the other of these that's being referenced here, They shall come like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land. I'll return them to their homes. He says, whatever, let me say this. What is certain is that the final event will far surpass our wisest thoughts and our wildest expectations. And that goes back to thinking about God the Father the way we ought to instead of the way we do. Thinking of him as God rather than as man. And thinking about his love is an eternal, infinite, unchanging love. The incomprehensible nature of God's love is designed to restore us from our natural bent to sin. And let us not forget something. Go back right now to chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, some of you have already looked at the marginalia in your Bibles. You've thought, you know, that sounds familiar. Out of Egypt I called my son. And you looked over there, chapter 11, verse 1, right, my marginalia is right down the middle. Some of yours may be on either side. And right there, it says, cited Matthew 2.15. Do you know when Matthew cites that, he says that this was fulfilled not in the nation of Israel and not in ethnic Judaism, but in the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see why I said earlier, this is why one commentator said this is the boldest chapter in the Bible. What it's saying about our God and what he's going to do for sinners. And right at the beginning is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophecy of Jesus. He's the reason for the divine discipline. He's the reason for the divine compassion. And he's the reason for the final salvation of his people. This whole chapter is bound up in the eternal decree, the father and the son, that the son would come and redeem his people from their sins. And he would be brought out of Egypt to accomplish that great work. That's the beauty of this bold chapter. It should drive us away from our sin and should drive us to our Savior. Father, we ask that it would do just that, that you would work in our hearts tonight, that we'd leave loving you, thinking more about your eternal love, thinking more of your Son and all that he's done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.